And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello, everyone, and welcome to Earth Destruction Directive. I am your host, as always, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. I'd like to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show today. And I would like to thank everyone for listening to our last episode, which was the unintentionally abbreviated episode where we took a look at Marvel Comics Godzilla number 12. I think we've got our technical issues sorted out. Of course, that's always kind of an ongoing thing here at Earth Destruction Directive. Uh, but we appear to be uh, uh, back on our feet, and so we've got a great episode for you today. We're going to be taking a look at two different uh, Ultraman games for various iterations of the Nintendo Game Boy handheld console. We are also going to be looking at the next issue of Marvel Comics Godzilla, which is issue number 13, continuing the saga of the Mega Monsters from the last issue. Not much news, we covered most of the news on the last episode, but I do want to say that if you happen to go see Thor Ragnarok in the theater, as I did this past weekend, then you will most likely see the trailer for Pacific Rim Uprising before that film. It looked very cool on the big screen. I am very uh, eager to see uh, Pacific Rim Uprising on the big screen, hopefully, as I did the original. Also, in the uh, November previews catalog, which is for books shipping in January, the first issue of Legendary Comics Pacific Rim Aftermath has been solicited. So uh, I mentioned that last time. You can go ahead and, if you get your comics via previews catalog, you can go and... Uh, order it via that catalog. I get mine through DCBS, which is dcbservice.com, and they use the previews catalog, so you can check that out there. Uh, if anyone else has any news, please go ahead and send it in, and we will get it here on the air. And we're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back with the first of two Ultraman games for the Game Boy here on Earth Destruction Directive. Fantastic Arse is your guide to the Fantastic Four from the beginning of the Marvel Age of Comics in 1961 onwards. Each week Steve Lacey and Andy Leyland cover every issue, spin-off, guest appearance and cameo, and more. And in 2015 we begin our journey through the decade that taste forgot, the 1970s. Join us as we take a look at... The departure of Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. The Kree Skrull War. The arrival of Marvel Team Up. Bill Murray as the Human Torch. Creators including Roy Thomas, George Perez, Marv Wolfman, Jerry Conway, 
Rich Buckler and John Byrne. And of course, Marvel 2-in-1. All this and more at ffcast.libsyn.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. The Fantastic Cast. Insert catchy tagline here. Wait, what? All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Up first today, we're going to be taking a look at the game simply titled Ultraman for the Game Boy, the original Nintendo Game Boy console. Ultraman was released in Japan on December 29th, 1991. It was never released in any other region besides Japan. The developer was BEC, which you might know better as Bandai Entertainment Company. I cannot find a release publisher, but I believe it was Bandai also. Uh, which is not uncommon for Bandai to both develop and release their own games. It is a one-player fighting game where you play as Ultraman and you defeat all the monsters threatening Earth, which makes sense. Now, the cartridge actually indicates that this can be played in a two-player mode with the link cable, but unfortunately, I don't have the necessary equipment to try that out. I do have a link cable, and I do have multiple Game Boys. I don't have two copies of the game. So I cannot uh, validate that either way, but uh, I'm reviewing it as a one-player game, which is how this game typically is presented. So the gameplay is actually very similar to the Super Nintendo Ultraman game, which was also released in 1991. Now that Super Nintendo game actually did make it over to the United States, but it had all of the enemies switched out with the monsters from Ultraman Towards the Future, which had been at the time the most recent Ultra show and was the first one in quite a while to air in the United States. Now, the game itself, like I said, plays very similarly, and the gameplay is that you fight the monsters, naturally, while building up your power meter, which is in the middle of the screen. As the um, as you, you know, beat on your monster, enemy monster, his life meter goes down. As he attacks you, your life meter goes down. When you knock out all the life meter out of the enemy monster, it says finish. And once it says finish, you have to use the Specium Ray to defeat them, uh, which means that you have to have built up enough power in order to have access to the Specium Ray and blast them with it. Now remember, the monsters slowly regain health too, so if you take too long after getting finished, you'll have to wear them back down again. Uh, this game has a pretty big cast of monsters. You battle in order. Demular, Alien Bolton, Red King, Bolton, Jamila, Gamora, Alien Mephilus, Alien Bolton 2, and then Zeton. Now the best way that I can describe this game is very Japanese, which is kind of a diplomatic way of saying that it has a lot of idiosyncrasies and a lot of quirks. Now some of those are by necessity from the Game Boy format, uh, but some of them are in the basic design of the game and they appear in all the different iterations of this game. This ex same basic game, besides being on the Super Nintendo, was also ported a couple of years later to the Mega Drive, which is the uh, Japanese version of the Sega Genesis. And again, this very similar type of gameplay. Now, as I said, as you fight, you charge up your power meter. Basically, the more time that goes on, the power meter just keeps filling up, right? And that gives you access to multiple special attacks, including the Slash Ray, the Ultra Slash, and then the all-powerful Specium Ray. Now, as you use each one, the meter goes back down. That makes sense. The thing is, you're not free to use each one. Let's say that your meter is fully charged all the way up to Specium Ray. Well, you can't fire any of them freely. What you have to do is move, there's a little arrow over each of the ones, and you've got to move the arrow to be over it, and then use, then you have access to that technique. 
Now, this can be kind of awkward given the limited number of buttons that you have on the Game Boy compared to either the Mega Drive or the Super Nintendo. So you basically have to press up left or up right, which can be tough in the middle of the fight sometimes on the Game Boy uh, D-pad because it's not the most necessarily responsive D-pad sometimes. So that's that that can be a little tough. And so the main so really the main sticking point that I see a lot of folks have with this game is that you have to use the Spessium Ray to win the fight. So when it says, like I said, when the meter says finish, you have to have enough energy stored up to use the Spessium Ray and have your selector on Spessium Ray to beat him. One shot will do the trick. But if you wait too long when it says finish, like I said, the life starts to regenerate. And so you've got to, so if you can't get that shot off, you have to wear them back down again. And when you're fighting against the controls to do it at the same time, it can be a little frustrating because you're like, okay, come on, move over, move over. I mean, it took me a long time to figure I had to press up left, up right to move it. I mean, I was trying all sorts of things and couldn't figure that out. I kind of came across that by accident. I mean, for a while, I thought you had to press and hold the jump button, which is start and then do it. Uh, but then I only recently discovered while doing the playthrough for this game that you don't have to do that, so you just hit up left, up right. But, I mean, that's just the way the game is designed, and, you know, really, if you're going to make a game that is a simulation, so to speak, of the Ultraman series, I mean, you know, that's how he did it. He beat most of them with the Spessium right. Now, Ultraman moves on the screen pretty slowly, um, but for the most part, so are the monsters, so that's okay. You know, it's a Game Boy game after all. Now, the Game Boy was never... Uh, really that great for fast-moving action games, especially uh, these early gray cartridge um, original release games. Um, now, you'll end up fighting a lot of the monsters by rolling in close to them, grabbing them for a throw, and then repeating. It's, uh, it, it's a pattern that a lot of them tend to fall into. Not all of them, but a lot of monsters, that's a good pattern to use. It's not the smooth sort of 2D fighting game you might have expected in 1991. It's much slower-paced and much more deliberate. But at the same time, it is, again, a Game Boy game. So you kind of expect that, and then you think, well, well, but the Super Nintendo one was kind of clunky like this, too. So it's that's by design, not necessarily a limitation to the hardware. Now, speaking of which, considering the hardware that they were designed for, the graphics are actually pretty good. The, the sprites are a good size, and it's very easy to tell which monster is which. There's not a lot of frames of animation, but on the Game Boy, that may be a benefit. Gotta remember, this was 91, this was developed for the original Game Boy, and having too many frames of animation on an original Game Boy game, you tended to get kind of blurry and soupy. So having them not have as much animation is actually not a bad thing in this case. Now the backgrounds, they're also quite nice. Each monster has a unique background which fits their episode. So you fight Bemular kind of in a, a scrubby wilderness, Alien Bolton is in a city, Red King's on a rocky island. Jamila actually has the peace conference in the background. And actually what's funny is that you uh, it is unique for each enemy. So when you fight Alien Bolton, it's the same stage as when you fight Alien Bolton too. It's, they just kind of recycle them in there to get the count of monsters up. The Super Nintendo and Mega Drive versions have a few extra monsters not featured in this, including Geronimon and Telesodon, I think, are, are the two. So, at least, they, you know, using Bolton twice, that's okay. They fought Bolton a couple of times, so that that's okay. Now, when I played this game for this review, I actually used my original Game Boy, which was a gift, a very generous gift from my father-in-law uh, last year, uh, or actually, excuse me, over the summer, and it used to belong to my late mother-in-law. And this is an original American Game Boy. It still works. And, uh, it, I mean, these, these things, I mean, literally you could drop a bomb on them and they'd be okay. Um, so playing on the original, the motion blur 
as I mentioned, is not bad at all. I've seen much worse on a Game Boy game because the sprites, do, like I said, they don't move real fast. So they, it actually looks quite nice once you, you know, get the contrast you're liking and get a nice light source. But that, again, that's, that's typical of the Game Boy. That's not specific for this game. Uh, overall, really, really playable on the Game Boy. I was actually very impressed by that. Now, what I, uh, as I, I tried this game on various different Game Boys just to see kind of how it looked. I mean, I wanted to play it on the original because that's how it was presented in 1991. And if you have an original Game Boy still kicking around, it, it looks all right. Now, on the Game Boy Color, you actually can do different uh, palettes, different color palettes. And one of the ones you can do is the grayscale, which will simulate playing the game on a Game Boy Pocket. Because the Game Boy Pocket was like a true black and white display. It didn't have the pea soup kind of yellowish green display that the original Game Boy had. I don't have a Game Boy Pocket, so I used the my Game Boy Adv uh, Advance to play it in a Game Boy Color style. And I did it in true black and white. And it actually looks quite sharp uh, in true grayscale. The screen is easier to see. But that's typical of playing games on the Game Boy Pocket versus on the, the original Game Boy. The Game Boy Pocket screen, because it didn't have that, like I said, the, the, the pea soup is how everyone describes it. Because it didn't have that uh, color, it was always a little bit easier to see. It was a little bit sharper. It looks very nice in black and white, actually. Um, and then... Playing on the on the GBA, I did the standard Game Boy Color palette. Now, again, there's a little bit of Game Boy history here. The original Game Boy and the Game Boy Pocket were monochrome. Okay, they had just a single monochrome dot matrix display. The Game Boy Color, which was the third, technically the fourth, but the third, really the third version of this hardware, gave us the limited color access for these older games. Basically, you had a series of color palettes you could choose, and they would use, you know, they could display four colors out of 16 on the screen and give a little splash of color onto those old monochrome games. And now there were also some games that had purpose-designed special palettes, uh, like the Super Mario Land games, uh, the Kirby games, Alleyway, which actually looks amazing on a Game Boy Color, uh, Metroid 2, some of the first-party games. Ultraman does not have a unique special color palette for the Game Boy Color, so it uses the standard color palette, which is uh, it's kind of a green, a blue, a salmon sort of color, and then black. Now, this actually looks pretty good, because the way that the colors are mapped, Ultraman and the monster sprites are a mix of salmon and black. So with the salmon and the black, it actually looks more reddish. So between the red and then the monochrome, like the, the you know, the, the air quotes up to the microphone, white, it actually looks pretty good for Ultraman on a Game Boy game. And the monsters, you know, the monsters mostly are different colors, but you know, it, it's, it's certainly workable. It's, it's, it's not a, um, it's, it's, it's not, like I said, not one of these like enhanced color palettes, but actually looks quite nice playing it in a Game Boy color style. Now, obviously, uh, I would say this game is best played on a Game Boy Color or a Game Boy Advance, but it is playable on the older systems as well. So if you've got one kicking around from when you were, um, you know, when you were younger and you find this game, you're good to go. I, I think it's totally playable on the monochrome systems as well as the color versions. Now, one aspect of this game, which I was actually really impressed with on this playthrough, was the music. Now, like the backgrounds, each stage has its own music, and they're very nice little chippy, you know, Game Boy music tunes. My favorite one is the Bemular theme, which has a nice kind of giant monstery sound to it. So I, I appreciated that one. 
Uh, and actually what's a nice touch is at the end of each round, you get the Ultraman theme. As you eat, win the round and Ultraman flies away, you get So that was a, a really, I appreciated that a lot. The sound effects are nothing special, typical sort of clunks and bumps and stuff. No, nothing uh, out of the ordinary for the era. But the music itself is worth is worth listening to, uh, to the point that actually I did break out my headphones while playing this game on my lunch break to do the playthrough for the game, or for the podcast, I should say. Now, there are some little touches in the game which have really started to impress me as an Ultraman fan the more time I've spent with the game. For instance, each round... Each, you know, each round, each level that you fight a monster, you get 180 seconds. You get three minutes. And in that last 60 seconds, the countdown timer starts to flash. So it's like, you, you're on the color timer here to beat these monsters. And if you run out of time, you grab your chest and collapse to the ground. So, and before each round, there's a nice graphical bit where you get the shot of Ultraman growing giant. And it's in these, you know, three little segments of him growing giant with his fist going up. And then when you win the round, you get a nice close-up of him looking up to the sky and flying off. Which, again, really, they didn't need to do that, but they're nice touches that really sell this as truly an Ultraman game. Now, some of the stages also have some extra bits which I've discovered, uh, which, if you've watched the series, are kind of amusing. When you defeat Jamila, for instance, instead of exploding like the other monsters, he collapses to his knees and then falls to the ground. And then the victory screen shows the Science Patrol's memorial service for him, like they did on the show. Now, for those of you who haven't seen it, that episode is called My Home is Earth, and it'll be coming sooner or later on this show. It's, it's an absolute favorite of mine. Um, later on in the game, when you defeat Alien Mephiles, he talks to you, because uh, you fire the beam at him, and then he blocks it with his own beam, and then he starts talking to you. And going on, he's in, it's in Japanese, but I'm going on memory here because it's been a few years since I've watched the episode. I think that he's basically, he basically says that he wanted the Earthlings to give up their planet willingly and that he will return. Um, and that's again like on the show because Ultraman actually doesn't beat him. He did, Mephiles disappears, um, after, after blocking the specium right. And then the final round, it, when you fight Zeton, if you beat him, and trust me, that is a big if. The difficulty in this game starts ramping up as you go on. Um, if you manage to shoot Zeton with the Specium right, he immediately, immediately retaliates and defeats you. Meaning that you get to play as Arashi firing the little handheld missile to kill Zeton. Now, however many lives you had in stocks, how many shots you have at this, so if you only got like one life left, aim carefully. And once you shoot Zeton, he floats up into the air and explodes. Ultraman turns back into Hayata and leaves in a ball of light. So it's very much the end of the series. Spoilers for those who don't know the end of Ultraman, but we'll get to there eventually. Uh, so it's very much, if you beat Zeton, you get the, the end of the show, the end of the story. So that's really quite nice for a Game Boy game. I really wasn't expecting that, and it was a very pleasant surprise to see these little story bits put in not only in the game as you're going with the individual monsters, but also at the end, instead of just saying, you know, having the victory screen and, you know, congratulations or something. It was, I, I thought that was a really thoughtful touch that Bandai did to, try, to really try and make this game as true to the Ultraman property as they could. And even on the Game Boy version. So on the, if it's on the Game Boy version, I've got to assume it's on the Super Nintendo and Mega Drive versions too. So I, I thought that was a really... Uh, a really cool bit that they, they put in there. Now, all of that having been said, this is a fun game if you like this sort of retro gaming. 
and I think we've established that I do. It's very niche, very niche, just as niche as the classic NES Godzilla game that we covered long ago in the days of hallowed antiquity, and it's about as clunky as that game too. But it's not without its old school charms. Now being a Game Boy game, as I said, this will play on any Game Boy, Game Boy Pocket, Game Boy Color, or Game Boy Advance system, as those systems do not have region locks, because as I said, this is a Japanese-only title, but Game Boy games can play on any Game Boy anywhere in the world, because there's no region 1, region 2, none of that stuff. Now that, um, that, the current generation with the 3DS hardware family, that is not the case, which I did not know, and actually was a little surprised to find that out, but... For the Game Boy generations, any game you get, you should be able to play without any region issues. Now, it might be in Japanese, but, you know, hey, you knew that coming in, right? So, and uh, despite it being an import, this is actually very easy to find on eBay. Um, I got mine for about $3 shipped, and that was from Japan. It's uh, it's a very common game. I'm guessing this must have been one of those games that was just everywhere in Japan, and so you see a lot of these video game resellers from Japan, and they, they have copies of it for a couple of bucks, and, you know, it's it's a handsome enough little case. It's orange. It's a gray Game Boy cartridge. It's got an orange label on it with a silhouette of Ultraman firing the Spessium right, so pretty, pretty nice. Now, really, as I've said, it's not a world beater. This is not a smooth SNK or Capcom-style fighting game. This is kind of a a clunky sort of game, um, but it's almost as if it suits it better being a Game Boy game that way, because we kind of expect that. You know, we don't expect super silky smooth combat on a Game Boy fighting game. We expect a little bit of clunkiness to it, whereas on the Super Nintendo or Mega Drive, it kind of stands out a little more because we had games like, um, and, you know, in the in uh, this was at the end of 1991. I want to say by 92, we had you know, Street Fighter 2, we had Fatal Fury, we had, eventually we got um, uh, Special Championship Edition of Street Fighter 2 over on the, the Genesis. So these are much smoother, faster fighting games, whereas this one, on the Game Boy, you almost kind of work with its uh, limitations a little bit because you kind of expect it a little bit more from a Game Boy game. Um, it's not a world beater, but it's, like I said, but it's a fun game if you're an Ultra fan. And clearly I'm an Ultra fan. And if you're listening to this, I assume that a lot of you folks out there have some appreciation for Ultraman. Uh, that's really the strength of this game. It's a relic of Ultraman history. And as a fan of the show, it's, it's a charming, utterly charming 8-bit version of the original series. And my advice is, you know, if you like Game Boy and you like retro gaming like Ultraman, you know, for a couple of bucks, pick it up and enjoy it as that, as a relic of a bygone age, both of video games and of Ultraman. Because, like I said, I, I had a lot of fun playing through it. Playing through it for this podcast was the first time that I actually beat the game. Um, I discovered some strategies to fight Bolton. Bolton is friggin' tough. Bolton's the second toughest monster in this game besides Zeton. So I, I worked out a few strategies for fighting Bolton, was able to not burn through a few lives fighting him, and that means I had more lives to fight Zeton, and more lives to try and shoot Zeton with the with the rocket bullet, so that helped, and so I was really kind of proud of myself for actually beating the game, because this was the first time I had done it, so um, that's my, hey, you know, like I said, go check it out on eBay, you can probably find it for a few bucks, and, uh, you know, dust off that old Game Boy you've got sitting in a drawer or up and maybe up in your attic or something and give it a whirl and uh, defend the earth from monsters. So uh, I'm going to take a real quick break and we'll be right back with the second Game Boy Ultraman game that we're going to be covering right here on Earth Destruction Directive.
Ultraman. We'll be right back after these messages. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Jason Giaconetti. You may recognize my voice from the Vault of Starling Monster Horror Tales of Terror. And if you don't, you should be listening. But today I need to ask you a few questions. Do you like big bugs and you cannot lie? All the robots just can't deny that when the Queen of Space walks in and puts a blast in your face that your gears get sprung? Are you deep in the bee we're sharing? Are you hooked and you can't stop staring? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then have I got a podcast for you. Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast. From classics to cults and all the yummy, yummy cheese in between. Look for my new show, Bots, Bugs, and Babes, on the Two True Freaks Network and on iTunes. That's Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast. Double J on the Triple B is your hookup. Holler if you hear me. Ultraman. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. The second Ultraman Game Boy game we're going to be taking a look at today is titled Taiketsu Ultra Hero, and that translates as Showdown Ultra Hero, which was released on March 5th, 2004 for the Game Boy Advance in Japan. Like the earlier game, this was never released in any other region. The developer was Jordan, our publisher was Nintendo, and this game is rated A for all ages by the Japanese video game review body, Serel. Now, much like the earlier game, this is a one-on-one fighting game, but being released 13 years after the fact is a bit more modern, and you can select to play as either an Ultra Hero or an Ultra Monster. You have a story mode where you play as an Ultra Hero and fight the various monsters, plus your evil double. Or you can do a versus mode where you pick a character and then fight another, and then you can go and change after each fight, kind of a one-player versus mode. There is also a two-player versus mode, but much like the uh, the other um, the, the earlier game, I don't have the necessary hardware to pull this off. I don't have two copies of the game, and this is not a download multiplay, single-card multiplay game. So Now, there is a very impressive roster that you have. You have Ultraman, Ultra 7, Ultraman Jack, Ultraman Taro, Ultraman Tiga, Ultraman Dinah, Ultraman Gaia, and Ultraman Agul for the heroes. And then on the monster side, you have Alien Balton, Dinosaur Tank, here called Dino Tank, Zeton 2, Tyrant, Gatanazoa, who is named G- Gatanathor in this, and Ray Chorus. Now, it's a very typical fighting game in the fact that you move around and jump with the D-pad, and the face buttons are used for attack. One is for punches, generally, and one's for kicks. Uh, that, at least for the Ultra Heroes, the monsters can be a little bit different because some of them are kind of different shaped than others. Um, the attacks are varied based on the range you are from your enemy and directional input. So, like, if you hit um, kick versus toward the enemy and kick, that might get a different attack. Obviously, if you're jumping, it'll do a different attack, that sort of thing. Typical fighting game stuff. And each character has unique um, sprites and attack animations, even all the Ultra Heroes, which is actually really cool. Because sometimes in fighting games, primarily I'm thinking of, like, the Midway game Mortal Kombat and its sequels, um, the early rendered ones, not not the uh, the, poly- the polygonal ones now, but a lot of the early ones, they'd have multiple characters that looked the same, and they were just palette swaps, and so, like, Sub-Zero and Scorpion had unique special moves, but their standard moves looked alike. Here, this being a fully sprite-based game, even though all the Ultra Heroes do obviously look somewhat similar, they're all, you know, red and silver giants, they all have unique 
animations for all of their regular attacks, and their sprites are all unique. So I thought that was really neat. Now every character, as I, as I implied, also does have special moves. Special moves are done by a conjunction of hitting one of the two shoulder buttons with one of the face buttons, and these vary depending on the character. Uh, the monster's special attacks, they're weaker, but they can use them as much as they want. They can, um, whereas the Ultra Heroes, aha, you knew there was a catch, they have a color timer. So on the bottom of the screen, you have a color timer that acts kind of like a power meter. In addition to the fact that as the round goes on, it slowly depletes itself also. So you can't just spam out Specium Rays and win. If you use a Specium Ray, it'll take a good chunk off your color timer, and if you miss, you know, you're going to be out a lot, to the point that it's not uncommon to lose fights as Ultra Heroes in this game by trying to hit the so your finishing move and missing and then running out of energy and having them collapse. Now, playing as the monsters uh, can be fun. They, the designers, I think, did a good job of changing up the experience for playing as the monsters versus playing as an ultra hero. As I said, you don't have a timer, so you can use their specials as often as you want. The downside of this is you don't have a powerful finishing move like the ultras do. All the ultra heroes have, you know, at least one move that'll, you know, wipe out half a life bar and, and usually is used to finish a fight. Um, they also don't have some of the, the Ultra Heroes also have kind of unique special stuff. They can do an air recovery where if they get thrown or knocked in the air, they can flip out and land on their feet. Uh, they also have the barrier. All of them have access to a barrier shield of some kind. The monsters don't have that. Uh, but the monsters do have their own strengths, which I think is nice. Tyrant, for example, because of his armor, takes very little damage from physical attacks. So you, you can hit him and he only does a little bit of damage. I hit that would do more impact on a different, a different character. Uh, Raycorus, he's, he's short, and so a lot of beams actually go right over his head, which can be tough if you're playing as someone whose finishing beam is fired while standing up, like Ultraman, whereas Jack, you can do his, his beam while either standing or kneeling. And then even shorter than that is Dino Tank. Dinosaur Tank is so short, it could be almost impossible to grab him. The only way you can grab him to throw him is if he rears up to do one of his special attacks, then you can reach in and grab him. So they, they, there's a nice variation on all the different monsters. And Gatanozoa, I mean, if you've ever watched Ultraman Tika, he is huge. He's like a mountain. So actually, you're just kind of moving back and forth in the background spewing out poison gas, and your attacks are whipping up tentacles in the foreground. It's actually very interesting. Um, it's like, if any of you have played uh, one of the later Marvel vs. Capcoms, where the boss is Onslaught, and Onslaught is huge, it's kind of be, kind of like playing like Onslaught. I'm not sure how you, you know, uh, it was just, it's just an interesting thing. He's, he's hard to beat, too, just because he's so big, and you got to basically just keep jumping. But um, Now, what this leads to when the monsters are controlled by the computer, as we all know, the computer cheats is that they will spam their special moves over and over and over. Zeton is very bad about this. He will just keep blasting over and over and over, and you get caught in one of his attacks, and you keep just getting juggled, basically. Raycorus will also do this, where he'll just keep firing his beam over and over. This can get frustrating. Like I said, you're getting hit repeatedly from across the screen. The computer Balton can also do um, a teleport and a slow fall, where he'll fall real slowly after jumping in the air. I'll be damned if I can figure out how to do that. I don't know how to do that when it's kind of... Because I'd like to be able to know how to do that because it'd be useful, but I can't figure it out. So, there you go. Now, that having been said about the monsters, the core of the game remains playing as the Ultra Heroes, which makes sense. It's not called Daiketsu Ultra Monster. It's called Daiketsu Ultra Hero. Now, I really, really like how they have differentiated the moves between the heroes. Even something as basic as the grappling throw 
they're vastly different for all the different characters. For example, Ultraman presses the monster above his head and then throws him down, kind of like you would expect. Ultra 7 doesn't even do a throw. He unleashes like a, uh, a combination strike, I mean with a spin kick. Jack does a snapmare. He kneels down, grabs the guy, grabs the opponent, and flips him over his shoulder. Taro shoots a leg like a wrestler, takes him down, and then grounds and pounds him. And then uh, Tiga um, puts his foot in the opponent's chest and falls on his back and kick flips him over, kind of like Rue and uh, Ken from Street Fighter. So it's, but all, and all the moves are like this. Each Ultra has such different attacks from all the others. They really bring out the unique nature, even before you get to the special moves and stuff of the different Ultra heroes. The special moves, as I said, they're nicely varied. Everyone has the finisher beam, but they get their other moves as well. Ultraman, for instance, has the Ultra Cutter, which is actually a very useful attack as it's very quick. Ultra 7 has his Eye Slugger. He can actually kneel and throw it and have it come back to him. And he also has one where he pulls it off his head and dashes and slices through like a samurai. Actually, it's very useful because you can juggle out of that because it knocks Kennedy straight up. And uh, Ultraman Jack, for instance, has his javelin, which is, <laughs> that is the coolest thing to me. Because he just pulls the javelin out and he throws it on an arc and everything. But, so all of them have different um, different uh, special moves that suit the character and are you know, um, uh, accurate to the show that they came from. Now, Tiga and Dinah being the Heisei um, uh, uh, heroes, they actually can change forms. So you can go from... You know, power type to sky type, or ground type to sky type for Tiga, and you get different special moves and different. Um, you actually changes your your uh, attributes a little bit depending on what mode you're in. So, Tiga's sky type, for instance, it's incredibly fast. He can jump from one end of the screen to the other, but obviously, sky type has the much less powerful uh, special attacks and his attacks do less damage. Whereas ground type is much slower, but he's got a much heavier finish that will wipe out quite a lot of, uh, of uh, life bar if you hit your opponent with it. I think that's really neat that they put that is that is a lot of fun to change types and all that and switch through, just like the the Heisei Ultra shows. Now, much like in the earlier game, when an Ultra wins a fight, he flies off into the sky. Now, they, they do it straight right from the gameplay screen. It's not a separate animation, but they still put look up and yush and fly off. So that is. I, I, that, that gets me every time. It's just little things like that that's just cool. Another neat touch that I like in this game is that the background music is not dependent on the stage or a random selection. It actually changes depending on who you're fighting. Because each monster is associated with one of the Ultra Heroes, you actually get that hero's music when you fight that monster. So Ultraman pairs with Balton, Ultra 7 with Dinosaur Tank, Jack is, uh, pairs with Zeton, because this is Zeton 2, it's the second version of Zeton. We fought Jack. Taro pairs with Tyrant. Tiga with Gatanathor. And Dinah with Rekurus. Gaia and Agul pair with each other. So you get Gaia's music with that. Now, what I found in the playthrough this time is that you actually, some you most of the time get the music for the monster. So, like, if I'm fighting Tyrant, I'm typically going to get Taro's music. But I was playing as Ultraman, and a couple of times if I lost and had to continue, I would get Ultraman's music. Maybe they're going to psych you up by getting your own music. But the music is nice. Um, GBA music, Game Boy Advance music, I think is really underrated. There's a lot of good music on the G on, available on the GBA, and I think the music tools that they had, um, the developers really learned how to use this, and I think they do a really nice job of uh, turning all the theme songs into um, you know video game music. I would have loved to hear the Ultraman Leo um, theme 
on this game. Unfortunately, Leo is not in the game. They stop right before him, but it, the music is really good. Uh, controls are, are, you know, for a fighting game, they're kind of typical fare. They're much smoother and faster than the old game, much more in line with what you would expect in 2004 from a one-on-one -on -one fighting game. Um, they're, you know, it's, it's, I'm not going to go and say that this is like, oh, watch out Capcom, but it's perfectly good on a Game Boy Advance. It, um, I, I have a few other fighting games for my Game Boy Advance of this style. Uh, I don't find the controls to be any better or worse than like, uh, Street Fighter Alpha 3 or King of Fighters EX or, um, I'm trying to think of any of their 2D animated games like that. I had, there's a few that are, um, uh, 3D. But, you know, the, the controls are good. They're easy to pick up. The special moves being just using the shoulders and the face buttons, I think, is, is uh, really helpful. It's much easier to it's easier to, to learn, but you do have to remember which one is which because you don't want to accidentally fire your finishing beam if you're just trying to use a setup move and then run out of energy. <laughs> so it does require a little bit of memory, but that, that's, that's part of the genre. That's part of the fighting game genre. So um, much like the earlier game, this game is, I don't recommend this game if you're not an Ultra fan. Now, I happen to be one, so to me, this is pure Ultra Hero fighting awesomeness. You know, I like fighting games, I like, uh, especially, um, you know, 2D fighting games like this, and I love Ultraman, so this is right up my alley. But if you're not a fan of Ultraman, there are better fighting game options on the GBA that are easier to get than this. So, again, I'm assuming that if you're listening to this episode that you like the Ultra series, but, you know, if, if you're like, oh, it's okay, then it's like, well, you could probably do better elsewhere. But uh, Now, this can be played on an American GBA, any variety, um, as I said, because the Game Boy consoles from the original all the way through the advanced do not have region locks. So um, I played this no problem on my American uh, Game Boy Advance SP. Uh, I have the AGS-101, which is the... Uh, backlit version, um, but any any GB, any Game Boy Advance original or SP or Micro will play this game just fine. Now you can also play this on Nintendo DS consoles. The DS was the replacement for the GBA, even though they kind of sold they sold concurrently for several years. Early DS releases had a GBA slot, but I want to say that starting with the DSi or maybe the DS Lite, they eliminated the GB, the Game Boy Advance cartridge slot on the DS hardware. So if you have an early Nintendo DS, you'll know because it'll have a cartridge slot on one part of it that's wide, like a Game Boy Advance game. And so that, you know, you can play it on there. I never had a DS. I went straight from my GBA to a, a 2DS. So I never, I'm, I'm not real familiar with the DS hardware, but I do know that there are several versions of the DS that allow you to play Game Boy Advance games, and this will play just fine on them. Um, uh, as I said, this is an import only, so it is in Japanese, but there's enough English on the menus you can figure it out, no problem. Uh, I got the game um, without a ma manual or anything, and I was able to, to figure it out. It's pretty straightforward. The hard part with this game is finding it. Now, I ended up hooking up with a, uh, an American expat who was living in Japan. We were both on the same message board on tokunation.com. He bought it for me from um, the uh, amazon.co.jp and then shipped it to me. So this one, I've, I've never really seen it on eBay. Um, you can always you know, keep looking for it, I guess, if you're, if you're hard. But that's the thing is this game is hard to find a physical copy of. It's probably one of the rarer... GBA games I actually own. I don't have a lot of rare GBA games except for this and Invader. But Invader is a that that's a topic for another another time and place. 
But you can keep, you know, it, I'm sure it can be found. And if nothing else, you probably can just emulate it at this point. That, that I don't, you know, the GBA is, is not supported anymore. So if you want to emulate it, it's worth playing. Um, but as I said, though, if, if you like fighting games and Ultraman, this is a good choice. It's going to be a little tough to track down, but hey, you know, if you want, if, I, I like just having it because I have the cart and I think it's a cool game. But um, So, have you guys played, you guys have any, have you played this one? Have you played the old one, the, the original 91 uh, Ultraman Game Boy game? Have you played any other Ultraman games? Please, go ahead, send me an email. We'll talk video games. I, I'm, I'm not the best video game player and I'm not up to date on just about anything except, you know, um, uh, 3DS. But I will gladly talk retro gaming if you, uh, if you guys are interested in that. Go ahead and send me an email, earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. And uh, we are going to take a quick break, and we will be back with more right here on Earth Destruction Directive. past, a monstrous hybrid of land and marine reptiles was sealed into a state of suspended animation, slumbering through the fall of dinosaurs and the rise of man. But awakened by an undersea nuclear test, the creature returned to life, now breathing the fires of radiation. Stan Lee presents Godzilla, King of the Monsters. we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Marvel's Godzilla number 13 is cover dated August 1978 and was released on or about May 2nd, 1978. That information comes from Mike's Amazing World of Comics at dcindexes.com. Our cover is by Herb Trimpey and it shows uh, Godzilla standing among the ruins of a city. We will find out inside it is Salt Lake City, Utah pressing an alien monster above his head, um, kind of like he's about to gorilla press slam him right at us, the reader, his uh, mouth roaring his defiance, and the copy says, Mayhem is the Mega Monster. A pretty cool uh, cover, very colorful, very striking image. I like this cover. Uh, our writer is, as usual, Doug Mensch, our penciler, Herb Trimpey. Inker is Fred Keita. Letterer is John Costanza. The colorist is Don Warfield. Our editor is Jim Shooter. The title of our story is Triax, and our um, synopsis is adapted from marvel.wikia.com. With the arrival of the mega-monster Triax on Earth, Rob Takaguchi in the Red Ronin and Godzilla team up to battle the monster on the outskirts of Salt Lake City, Utah. However, when Triax is overpowered, the Megans send down their other two monsters, Ryan and Krolar, to aid the fa their fellow Mega Monster. As the battle rages on, a Megan ship arrives near Earth to use an energizing beam to superpower their monsters. The Batons launch a counterattack, but are unable to stop the Megan ship and lose their moon base in the effort. Back on Earth, the Shield Godzilla squad tries to coordinate the military response against the monsters, but they are hesitant to open fire with Rob piloting Red Ronin. 
Jimmy Woo and Tamara, remember them, arrive to inform Dum Dum of the battle in space, but there is very little they can do about it from the surface. Ryan is able to use its whirling blade-like tail to chop the head off of Red Ronin, deactivating it and knocking Rob unconscious in the process, right as the Megan Beam gorges the Mega Monsters with power, making them grow even larger and leaving Godzilla to battle the super-powered monsters alone. Next issue, the spectacular conclusion, action, drama, and rare heroism as Godzilla faces the Super Mega Monsters. Wow, a full-out wall-to-wall Daikaiju battle in this issue. Super fun, not much in the way of deep storytelling here, but man, what a blast to read all this out-and-out monster mayhem. So let's get right into the notes. So, the cover, as I said, very striking image with Godzilla pressing Ryan above his head amidst what is absolutely rubble of a city. I mean, we see collapsed buildings, we see uh, some leaning on their side, uh, one missing the whole top, and you see a big plume of smoke rising up from behind Godzilla's tail, obviously, where there's been a lot of uh, carnage taking place. Um, there's no humans on the cover, as we typically see. Instead, the city itself and the buildings are what give us our sense of scale. And what's interesting here is that not only is Godzilla much bigger, obviously, than the um, than the buildings that he is standing amongst, amongst, but Ryan is much bigger than Godzilla. So the threat clearly is real. If uh, you know we've got this mega monster uh, that is even bigger than our our heroic monster, so that really t- says something. But the only thing I don't like about this is that the background is a solid color. It's um, full red for about halfway, and then it kind of gradiates a little bit into a pink and then kind of a very pale, almost rose color. So there's not much detail in the background. It's mostly the foreground image. That That's a kind of a, a negative, but other than that, I really do like this cover. Turning over now to page one, uh, the splash page is kind of strange in this issue in that Godzilla's back is to us, and we've got Red Ronin cramped over onto the left-hand side of the page. The focus is much more squarely on Triax, who is sort of a blue-gray turtle monster, and he has a pair of eye stalks and a green shell on his back. It's one of the weaker splash pages so far in the series. It really doesn't, um, you know, it's just kind of two monsters and a robot, and we're looking kind of over Godzilla's back. So this one was a little less impressive and not nearly as impressive as the color. Uh, turning over to pages uh, two and three, the fight is on, and it gets started quick and does not let up in this issue. Um, Triax has uh, an attack where he he has jets in his feet, kind of like Iron Man, except he's got four feet. And he launches himself into the air, sucks in his limbs, and then uses his uh, armored head as a battering ram. And he repeatedly rams Godzilla and Red Ronin throughout the issue. And uh, he really does a number on Godzilla on this uh uh, in this first attack here, on uh, page three, panel one, it says "whump" is the uh, the sound effect. You see Godzilla rearing back. And actually, looks like he's tipping over because his right leg is down, but his left leg is rearing up, and he's got his hands up in reaction. So it looks like he got knocked down by this battering ram attack. Further on down the page, panel five, um, it's a double team where Red Ronin and Godzilla both lash out at uh, at Triax here. Red Ronin with the laser sword and Godzilla with his atomic breath. And you see Triax yelping out. He doesn't make any sound, but you can see his mouth is wide open. 
and he's just, uh, you know, roar. It, it looks, it just, and his eye stock is flailing off to one side. So it looks like he's really feeling the, um, impact of this double team attack from our, our two monsters. I also like on this panel is that, uh, I also like on this page that Rob is starting to understand that if he's piloting a giant robot, he has certain responsibilities. And one of those responsibilities includes fighting the space monsters that are invading Earth. I, I like that. He's trying to, starting to at least, behave in a way that makes more sense. He's not acting as selfishly here. This is a kind of a continuation of the characterization we saw of him in the last issue. So I got to think that Mench is onto something here and maybe we can, maybe we can redeem Rob Takaguchi. We shall see. Turning over now to page four, panel one. Uh, I mentioned that Triax has the boot jets. He actually rears up and blasts Red Ronin with the boot jets, which is great. That's, that's such like an Iron Man sort of thing, to use the boot jets as a weapon, but it's great out of a monster. I really like that. And then on the, but the very next panel, while Triax is distracted with Red Ronin, Godzilla tail chops the living heck out of him with uh, a giant schwump as the, uh, of the sound effect here and just sends him flying away. Basically tail chops him, um, and, and, and sends Triax into a full retreat, except he retreats towards the city. So, uh, Red Ronin has to go and, and uh, step up, so to speak, and uh, basically he does this by flying and he grabs Triax by the rear legs and yanks him up out of the city and dumps him back out into the outskirts out in the wilderness. So again, um, Rob taking much more responsible action while using Red Ronin than we saw at the Grand Canyon, and he's actively saying that he's got to get there faster, he's got to stop them and get them, get them away from the city so he doesn't hurt any people. So Unlike the Rob Takaguchi we saw in the Grand Canyon, who was just fighting and didn't realize that there was people around he could hurt, here he is very actively thinking about that his actions have consequences and he's got to act and stop this monster, which I, I really do like this. So I'm, I'm definitely growing on the depiction of Rob Takaguchi kind of coming to grips with the situation that he's in and what this means for him personally. Uh, turning over to pages uh, six and seven, I call this segment Reinforcements from Space, as Ryan and Krolar make landfall. They make The Mega Monsters make for a very strange trio here. Um, you know, we've got... Uh, Krolar, who looks kind of like a centipede, sort of, except he's got a big, gaping, leech-like mouth. And then uh, Ryan, who's got like a saucer head, and but it opens out like a, like a frog's mouth, and then he's got a tail kind of like a fish. Uh, except with a, with almost like a, like a fish, but like a fish with like a fin and then a third tail in the middle. So, uh, and they're, they're all kind of brightly colored. Uh, Ryan is kind of an orangey red, or excuse me, um, Krolar is an orangey red and Ryan is a, a yellow with some, some black highlights. Uh, good looking, uh, uh, monsters from, from Trimpy here. Page seven, uh, panel one. This is actually pretty nice is that, um, you know, uh, Red Ronin had grabbed Triax and he's carrying him. He's got him. He's holding him uh, on his underbelly, and he throws him at the other two monsters. It's you know, it's kind of like in the Monster Apocalypse game. You can throw th you can throw monsters at other monsters, and uh, and but I do like that Krolar and Ryan then evade. So you know that that was a nice touch where you know it, it's a good thought, but you know obviously these guys have some pretty good reflexes, and we find out later on in the story that they're not just organic. They are actually uh, part cybernetic, so you can imagine that they've got computerized responses, um, you know, uh, helping to predict and control their reactions to uh, to battlefield situations. I like that a lot. Bottom of page seven, 
as uh, Krolar bur burrows underground, Ryan actually sp he spins his tail like a helicopter and flies at Godzilla and then clamps onto him with his big frog-like mouth and picks him up off the ground. Now this is, first off, this really puts over Ryan that he's strong enough to pick Godzilla up. But this also leads over now to page 10, where Godzilla is just not, he's not dealing with any of Ryan's crap right now. So while he's being held up, he bites Ryan in the leg and then blasts him point blank with the atomic breath and knocks Ryan out of the sky. And Mench's narration here is is very good. I've, I, it's very descriptive because, as Mench says, that Godzilla, uh, referring to Godzilla, the Leviathan grows tired of being carried and so as he blasts him, returns to the ground. So what I like about this is that Mench is showing that even though Godzilla is outnumbered by these mega monsters, he can still enforce his will upon them when he wants to. He doesn't want to be picked up by this monster. He will not be picked up. So Godzilla is still the king of the monsters, even though these, me these mega monsters are very powerful and very uh, strong enemies. You know, Godzilla is still king of the hill as we stand right now. Pages 11 and 13, kind of our uh, space opera interlude, as we get a good look at the Megans and then the Batons, and uh, the Megans with their plan to use their energy ray, which made me think of the Enervator from the Iron Man comics that always turned Happy Hogan into the freak. So we get a little bit of space opera here before we cut back to uh, Earth. On the bottom of page 13, panel 5, we got a panel where we see... Uh, in the back, behind the city, we see Godzilla and Red Ronin fighting Krolar and Ryan, and the National Guard rushing forward, and we see the National Guard commander, he's facing us, but he's pointing, telling everybody, move out, take that hillside! For all the life of me, this looks like the old Mars Attacks card, we can't hold them back, which showed, and, I, and I'll put a link up in the, in the, in the show notes, it showed the, uh, basically, uh, an army of giant bugs coming at the army, and they were, you know, a guy was pointing, saying, we can't hold them back. And then they did a homage to this card in the Dinosaur's Attack line, which I think, which has the same name. It's also called We Can't Hold Them Back. Um, so that made, is what it made me think of here, him pointing and seeing the monsters on one side and the army on the other. Uh, you know, this, this is where my brain goes sometimes. I don't know if, uh, you know, I, I don't know why it jumped to that, but that's what it jumped to. Over on page 14, panel 1, Triax uses his battering ram attack once again. It, it's his, it's kind of like his one trick, but man, it's a good trick, because he actually takes out both Godzilla and Red Ronin in one shot, and then smashes through a, a building and topples it at the same time. So I thought that was a, you know, it, again, he's only got his one trick, but if it's a good trick, you know, we can, we can work with that. Um, further on down, panel 4. Um, Ryan comes in and tries to grab Red Ronin. Godzilla blasts him again. So Ryan is taking kind of the brunt of the punishment from Godzilla's atomic breath in this issue. And, uh, but he's still coming, you know, so these mega monsters are pretty tough too. You know, they're, they're taking a licking and keeping on ticking here. Turning over, now we got a few ads in the middle, but turning over now to page 19. Shield finally shows up. They arrive just in time to witness a monster war, and there is not much they can do about it. Panel 3 on this is a very nice panel. It's about two-thirds of the height and the full width of the page, and it just shows all-out monster war as Godzilla is wrestling with Krolar, and Triax is um, coming in above to try and ram him again, and we see Red Ronin wrestling with Ryan, and you see Ryan has got his mouth clamped on one of Red Ronin's hands as he's, fly, um, as he's whirling his tail to fly above him. Uh, we see lots of uh, buildings just with uh, the roofs destroyed and bits falling off. We see flames and smoke. I mean, if you showed up 
And this was what you saw. It's like, man, you're going to have a bad day at the office. That's all I got to say about that. Over now on page uh, 21, after uh, Jimmy Woo and Tamara show up, and it's like, hey, we remember them. It's been a few issues since we've seen them, not since uh, Rob stole the Red Ronin for the second time. I think it was the last time that we saw them. So so panel five on that page, Godzilla presses Triax above his head. It's much like the cover, but it's the even though it's the wrong monster. So that that's kind of interesting, is that the, the cover shows him pressing Ryan above his head, but here he's actually pressing Triax above his head, which makes more sense considering that um, you know, tri- the story is called Triax, so it's kind of odd that Ryan is on the cover. I guess Triax looked more interesting when they were laying things out, or, you know, maybe it just, just chose to go that way. But him pressing him above his head leads to the first panel on page 23, which is the next story page, where he completely tosses him into the Great Salt Lake and just, you know, just throws him away. I mean, it reminds me, for all the world, like, uh, you know, like uh, a wrestler, like the big show or somebody gorilla pressing somebody and just tossing him because that's what it looks like here. And Mench's narration once more puts over Godzilla imposing his will because the caption box says, Triax has hurt Godzilla several times. Godzilla does not like it. And that's it. And as we see, um, you know, we just see the, uh, the, the, the surface of the Great Salt Lake with Triax sinking beneath it. So Godzilla once again imposing his will. We get a little bit more space opera interlude as the Badens try to destroy the Megans, but don't pull it off before the, the Megans use their ray to superpower the Mega Monsters, and the damaged Baton ship crashes into their dome, destroying it. And then we go uh, back to Earth, and here on page 28, we find out that Krolar is like a vacuum, apparently going from suck to blow, because he opens up his big leech-like mouth and sucks in a house and a tree and some rubble, and then immediately fatooms it right back at Godzilla. So he's kind of, I guess, like an air bladder. He can suck in air and then squeeze it back out. It's kind of an interesting approach for a uh, kind of uh, centipede, lizard-looking monster, because he's got a lot of legs, but he's got a long, kind of cylindrical, vaguely cylindrical body with a big leech mouth that's a big, wide mouth, so that kind of makes sense. So I like that these there's been some thought given to these guys and, and how they fight. They're not just random monsters. They have different techniques that they use, you know, and this is the first time we see Krolar using this, so it's, it's a bit of a surprise here in the tail end of the story. I, I do like that. Then further down at the bottom, Ryan uses his tail that he's been using to fly around in a different way. Now, the dialogue is, is incorrect here because the Megans have been talking to the Mega Monsters with telepathy, and the Megan voice says, Krolar, remember you are a biomech. Remember your anterior bioblade. Well, they meant to say Ryan, because it's Ryan. But Ryan spins his chopper tail like a blade, um, leading us to the first panel on page 29, where he chops Red Ronin's head off with a jet, and you just see the head flying backwards, and Red Ronin, or the red head of Red Ronin flying back, and uh, Rob Takaguchi just yelling, No! It's, it is, I tell you, the first time I read this, I was downright, I was really kind of floored that they chopped the head right off of, uh, of the Red Ronin here. This is really cool. And, um, I, I normally am not a big fan of the solid colored backgrounds, but here we've got kind of a, kind of a sea foam green, but then the inking, the inking by Fred Keita looks great because it just shows the, 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 the impact lines. Of, so it's it's almost like you'd see in an anime where they'd go to a static shot of something that's really, you know, uh, after a big impact or something like that. That's what this really looks like. 
is we just see the head flying back, we see the arms rearing up, and just this impact lines all in the background. It's a beautiful panel. And it's really, it's one of these, holy crap, what are they going to do now? You know, because Red Ronin has been invulnerable for the most part, even fighting Godzilla. And now, you know, this, this space monster just literally chopped his head off and deactivated the Red Ronin. I mean, th this really was an amazing amazing way to really surprise me as I was reading this story. And now this leads us down to the last panel, which is panel six here, as the, the Megan Ray finally hits Earth, and the three mega monsters are now giganticized, for lack of a better word. We see Godzilla barely comes up to the um, the chest of Ryan and the Krolar and Triax as well. Now tower over him and tower over the ruins of the city. That is one heck of a way to end this. You know, we've seen Godzilla impose his will on these monsters throughout this story. Well, now he's outnumbered and outgunned. Will he be able to impose his will anymore? That's the question that I want to know. And I am, oh man, I, I know I've been gushing about this book, but man, uh, I tell you what, Mench and Trimpy absolutely firing on all cylinders in this issue. We get an all-out monster battle, the, the type of all-out monster battle, which kind of was denied to us during the Yetrigar storyline. The space opera interludes, you know, they tie back into the main monster story. Um, I gave them kind of short shrift here because they're, they're fairly straightforward. And the human aspect with S.H.I.E.L.D. and the National Guard, again, all exist in service of this monster fight. So it kind of reminds me of, um, you know, kind of a, a later Showa film where the uh, where the human action is directly related to and not necessarily driving, but in re reaction to the monster actions. There's not necessarily a secondary human plot going on. There's only monster stuff and people reacting to the monster stuff. We get three really creative and very well done space monsters. I mean, I'm really impressed with these three and the amount of uh, time that it appears that uh, Mench and Trimpy put into them. To give them not just, oh, they spit fire or something like that. To give them unique um, weapons and methods of attack. I really like that. It's very creative. It's a good use of the comic book medium to tell a Daikaiju story. Because you're not limited by, oh, well, we can't have him fly around with his tail. be no way to lift that suit up. Or, you know, we can't have him... Um, you know, I don't, we don't know, we don't have a way to have him suck stuff into his mouth and launch it back out without it just being a beam. So it, it takes advantage of the medium really nicely. Um, there's a hell of a cliffhanger with the, the Red Ronin decapitated, Rob Takaguchi unconscious, and Godzilla now outnumbered three to one by these giganticized mega monsters. What, what a great cliffhanger. I mean, if you read this, there's no way you're not going to go get that next issue if you're any kind of a monster fan. And, uh, you know, so that there's there's a great promise for the next story. And, you know, even though I said not a lot of great character development here, Rob Takaguchi's character is starting to change in a positive way. You know, we're starting to see him understanding the responsibility that he now bears on his shoulders for piloting the Red Ronin. So, uh, you know, that that's a good change, and that's a good bit of character development in what is otherwise a very action-packed issue. So I'm curious to see how he'll respond to Red Ronin's, you know, air quotes up to the microphone, death. Here, I mean, this overall, a really good, really fun issue. This is one of the best issues I've read of this series so far. I'm really impressed with this Mega Monsters storyline, and I'm hoping that the conclusion lives up to the first two parts. Now, as always, this is collected in Essential Godzilla. This is the only place this has been collected. 
Uh, just flipping through the the book here, see if we've got any any interesting uh, ads. Um, kind of the same stuff we've seen a few times. We got the vampire one for the Slim Jims. Um, the brand new Marvel uh, pad, which is a um, a pad of paper, and on the um, left hand side they've got two different designs. One of all the headshots of all the characters that were kind of uh, the big characters at the time, and then one is there. There looks like kind of like their corner box posters mostly. Uh, but that, that's pretty neat. I mean, that'd be nice. I, it's, I do like that it has Spider-Man on the top. It kind of reminds me of um, when you see people post pictures of no prizes, and they have that Marvel stationery that had got had Spider-Man kind of uh, wall-crawling across the top of the page. Uh, we got a Pizzazz um, subscription ad, house ad for subscribing, which has it's an odd group. It's got headshots of Iron Man, Conan, and Nighthawk. It's like, uh-huh. I don't think we could pick three more different... Maybe, maybe if they put Patsy Walker in there instead of one of them. I don't know. Um, let's see. Uh, yeah, we got the same um, Spider-Man meets the Homewrecker hostess ad that we got last time, so we won't go over that again. We, we get the bullpen bulletins. Stan's soapbox. Stan is asking people to write in with ideas for, for the soapbox. Um, we get the uh, some stuff about Star-Lord... The Human Fly and the Invaders, the Pocketbooks. Uh, there's a little, little small ad for the Beatles story, which is interesting because over on the Godzilla Grams letters page, uh, the, that is the, uh, the ad at the bottom of that again is the, and now the Beatles, the Marvel Super Special number four. In the letters page, Rick Nelson writes in to say thank you for putting the adventures of his favorite movie monster in comic book form. He also, um, credits uh, Doug Mensch with creating Red Ronin. And this was kind of an interesting response, because this is the response here. He says, you're right, Rick, in assuming that Rob's brainwaves into Red Ronin circuitry was Doug's idea, but the basic concept of the giant robot battling Godzilla must be credited to former editor Archie Goodwin. Also, after Doug had come up with Future Fighter and Phi-Tar, it was Archie who convinced the final name, conceived the final name of Red Ronin. Utilizing the authentic Japanese word Ronin, meaning a samurai without a master. Finally, the various details concerning Red Ronin's weaponry, operation, and visual appearances were worked out in tandem between Doug and artist Herb Trimpey, but owe a debt of basic inspiration to such Japanese creations as Raidine. So here we go, a couple of years before Samurai uh, the Shogun Warriors, we're seeing a name check to Raidine. Here in the pages of Godzilla that, of course, Doug Manch and Herb Trempe would go to work on. So, you know, I, I know I did them the other way around, but it really seems like the, these two series are, you know, designed to be kind of um, kind of uh, spiritual siblings, so to speak, with the same kind of creative team and the same idea of importing Japanese um, you know, properties into the U.S. here. Uh, Ed Bumgartner from Mount Vernon, New York, my old, uh, kind of near my old stomping grounds when I was a kid, um, says that he hopes that Las Vegas is destroyed and the whole state of Nevada is most likely wiped out, and he's hoping that, um, that that'll be reflected, I guess, in other Marvel books. And then we get, uh, Larry Cummings, who writes in from Oil City, Pennsylvania, to put over the, the book in general and the whole idea of, uh, the idea that a, a giant robot would have to be piloted by a child because it would need a mind of a child in order to understand how to fight monsters. It's a fairly, uh, a fairly, uh, uh well put together letter here. He gets into talking about that, uh, only a child would give the robot a name and talk to it as if it were alive. Only a child would go to such great lengths to avoid hurting Godzilla while protecting innocent people. And who else would attack Dum Dum's shield helicarrier in order to help? 
So uh, it's a good good letter from Larry Cummings here. So good uh, good letter column. But uh, that's about it for the issue. Uh, did anybody out there read this one? What do you guys think about this one? It, I've, I've really been enjoying this Mega Monster storyline. I, like I said, I hope the third part you know, wraps everything up really nicely. I'm very much looking forward to reading it. So if you guys have read this one, if you think I'm on, if you think I'm, I got a good point, if you think I'm totally off base, go ahead and send an email into earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com and we can talk about it here on the show. All right, we are going to take a quick break and then come back to finish up the show here on Earth Destruction Directive. Hey, Paul, what's up? Ah, not much. What's going on? I'm, I'm just a little confused lately. I can't. What else is new? Well, you know, m- more than usual, I tried to go to get the shows that we just put up, and I was having problems finding them. Well, we have trouble finding them. Well, I couldn't find Back to the Bins. I couldn't find Avengers Spotlight. Of course, you can only find those when I actually edit them. <clears throat> and, um, <laughs> oh, you took the words you know, right out of my mouth. They're on the feed, Bill. Yeah, I know. That's where I went. I went to the feed, but they weren't there. You no, know, you got to go to the feed. you got to go to the Back to the Bins feed. The Back to the Bins feed? What's yeah, that? Back to the Bins feed. You got to go to iTunes. You look for look up Back to the Bins, and you subscribe to the Back to the Bins feed. But I went to Two True Freaks. Yeah, we're on that feed too. What? Where? On the feed. Okay, wait a minute. Wait a minute. So you're saying that we're on? All right. So if I wanted to go find the shows that we've done, I'm gonna go on to iTunes and I'm gonna click on Back to the Bins, and I'll find Back to the Bins and Avengers Spotlight in the feed. Exactly. I don't even know what I'm talking about! Bill, you go to the feed, you subscribe to the show, you subscribe to whichever show you want, and then you get it. It's that simple, you just gotta go to the feed. What show do I want? Back to the Bins. Where? And Avengers Spotlight. Oh, I'm so confused. They're on iTunes. They're on twotruefreaks.com. You want them, you get them. You got them? All the shows are there. They're still all available, Bill. All right, on the so feed. the feed. If you say feed one more time, I'm going to break your arm. Uh, Scott, could you tell him? Hey, man, don't don't drag me into this because uh, it's no skin off my ass. I'm on all the feeds. <laughs> Bastard. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. And it is now time for what is you typically my favorite part of the show, listener feedback. And if you would like to be part of listener feedback, please go ahead and send me an email to earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I have a few other ways you can get in touch with the show. Those will all be in the outro. So let's get right into it. Our first email today comes from my good friend in front of the show, Mr. Adam Tebow, and is entitled Power Rangers The Movie. Greetings, Luke. I wanted to write in and share some of my memories about the original Mighty Morphin Power Rangers The Movie. Despite your vile slander kidding in the podcast episode, I was, in fact, a huge Power Rangers fan as a kid. The show came out when I was 10, so I was the perfect age to enjoy the colorful costumes and giant robots. I watched the show pretty regularly until the Lost Galaxy era and then kind of lost, pun intended, track of it. Anyway, when 95 rolled around and the movie came out, I begged my dad to see it in the opening weekend. He took me and my brother to the theater behind Regency Mall in Augusta, which at the time was the only part of the mall still open. My dad preferred that theater because it was slightly cheaper than the others in the area, and he was, well, a dad. (laughs) 
That is so awesome. <laughs> I just want to jump out and say that. That is so awesome because, you know, I don't know how many movies I went to at the Jefferson Valley Mall movie theater because it was cheaper. I, I totally know where you're coming from. Oh, Adam continues. I remember they had all kinds of swag like posters and buttons and stuff they were handing out for the movie. The actual movie itself blew my kid brain, especially the CGI Zords, but more on that in a minute. I recently rewatched it in preparation for the reboot movie, and I have to say, it mostly held up. It was exactly what I remember early Power Rangers being, namely earnest, goofy, and full of great fight scenes. The only thing which hasn't held up over the years is the CGI. It looks really, really bad. No arguments here. I wish the movie producers would have stuck with the suitmation style of the show, but I understand that CGI was the new frontier at the time. Overall, the rewatch was a great experience and really brought me back. Anyway, enjoyed the show as always. Keep them stomping. Adam Tebow. Adam, first off, thank you very much for writing in. And yeah, I'm right there with you. Power Rangers the movie has held up really well considering um, kind of the kind of seat of the pants way that it was made while they were doing season three. They were also filming the movie kind of at the same time. And there was a lot of changes. You know, we talked about they had... Um, Mariska Hargitay as Dulcea, and they had the different uniforms where the helmets had the open visors and stuff. So there was a lot of stuff kind of going on behind the scenes in the making of that movie, and it really does hold up. My kids really like it. Um, that was one that we watched um, kind of around the same time you were talking about in prep for the new one coming out. They really have really enjoyed watching that one. It's kind of gone into our rotation a bit. I don't think my wife has really sat down and watched it. Uh, this is one that maybe we watch when mom is out of town or something like that. And it's just daddy and the kids kind of thing. But, um, yeah, uh, like I said, I'm, I'm sure, and I'm sure, you know, a short person in your house will probably love that movie in a couple of years too. So, <clears throat> um, you know, not to, not to put too fine a point on it. So thank you very much for writing in Adam. Our next email comes from Jack Bond, and his email is entitled, The Score Stands, Planet X, Monster Zero. Jack writes, I'm glad Toho decided the official title would be Invasion of Astro Monster. King Ghidorah never got his own movie like Rodan or Mothra or Godzilla, but he gets solo billing on two titles under his own name and his wrestling name. Does that mean Monster Zero is his porn name? I can imagine him catching and keeping an old Mitsubishi Zero as a pet. See, the way I, I think of it is that um, King Ghidorah is his real name, Monster Zero is his wrestling name, and then Astro Monster is like his nickname. You know, like The Undertaker was the Dead Man or the Phenom, or, you know, um, Kane was the Big Red Machine. So, uh, or Ric Flair was the dirtiest player in the game. So I figure that's what it is. It's like, he's got his, re under his real name and then under his, uh, ring name. And then he gets put over as the astral monster, you know, Jack continues. I do have nice things to say about the flying saucer. Um, the blue pinstriping does give it a sporty look while still keeping it with the dignity of the Exians. I mean, red would have been going too far. Uh, <laughs> the landing and hatch opening scene is really effective. I'm glad they took the time out of the monster monster delivery, attack runs, and explosions it had to show us it as to show it to us as a real object. And this is an ongoing thing with Jack and I about the Exians UFOs. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I can I can see your points. It is kind of uh, bulbousy looking, but I guess because I saw it when I was a little kid, it always made such a big impression on me. And you do make a good point that showing the, you know, them landing and the hatch and all that, it does show it as a real 
object, a real mecha, not just a prop. And I do, and I do gotta agree with you on that one. So, uh, I'm, I'm glad we could find some common ground on the Exigen spaceship. <laughs> Jack continues, do Godzilla fans refer to this movie and the two before it as the middle trilogy like Star Trek? All released in the space of two years. That crew was firing on all cylinders and giving the gas and enough road for an exciting ride. Signed, Jack. I've never heard these films referred to as such, but you're right. They do kind of form a loose trilogy, and I do see a lot of people grouping them together. Because the first three don't really... King Kong versus Godzilla is kind of stands on its own. You know, Godzilla and um, Godzilla Raids Again, they work really well together because they're both in black and white. They were made right after each other. You know, um, so they, they kind of are their own little thing. And then these three, besides having a lot of cast members, uh, in common, and of course, many, many production members are the same between these, these three films, uh, which is Godzilla versus, uh, The Thing, uh, Gator the Three-Headed Monster, and Monster Zero. I, I, they definitely do work as a trilogy. And what I always see them kind of referred to as, is the, there, you know, that's the golden age of giant monsters. These are the, Monster Zero was seen as the last one of the golden age, because starting after Monster Zero, we shift over to the ones that the budgets started noticeably going down. The ones that are generally called, like, the South Seas movies, like Son of Godzilla and Godzilla's Revenge and Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster. Those are, and no, and then Destroy All Monsters is in there, which kind of messes it up. But even Destroy All Monsters has, you know, takes place partially on an island, so. Islands were cheaper to make than cities. You know, Destroy All Monsters, of course, has plenty of cities in it, but that's neither here nor there. But anyway, I'm, I've never seen it referred to as such, but I do know people that kind of group them together like that, so you're definitely onto something. I mean, this really was when the crew was hitting their stride, all aspects of the crew, both from the, um, you know, the, the, the direction for the human aspects and then the acting and then the special effects side. These films really work together well. And they film a nice little sort of story as Godzilla moves from being a villain to kind of a reluctant hero to Crusader by the third one. And that kind of cements his status going forward for the remainder of the show of film. So that's that's very good point, and I'm glad you brought that up. Jack, thank you very much for writing in. Uh, always glad to hear from you when we can talk about some mecha. And our last email today comes from Rich S. and is simply entitled Amazon, which when I read it, I read it as Amazon! Like Common Rider Amazon. But of course, that may just be me. And Rich writes... Luke, congrats on another great episode. I just wanted to give you a quick heads up about Amazon. One, it's a decent place to find old Marvel Godzilla comics. So if you have exhausted the resources of eBay, Amazon can be a good alternative so as to complete your collection. I used it to great success at filling in my collections of the original Howard the Duck run and plop from DC. Uh, I'm going to jump out here. That, that's a good point. I, don't, I never think to check Amazon for collectible stuff. I'll check Amazon all the time for media, movies, you know, games, and always check the, the marketplace. You know, go, go. Oh, we have we have 35 copies of this used from nine cents. You know, just click on that. But I, I never think to do it for collectible stuff. But Rich is absolutely right. You go digging in the marketplace on Amazon, you can find all sorts of stuff. And I'm assuming these are all guys that have it up on eBay and Amazon. But you know, hey, if you can't find it on eBay, go check Amazon. It's a really good point. I do have to fill in. 
the three issues that I'm missing on Marvel Godzilla. I'm hoping um, once we get through the holidays, we get into con season coming up for South Carolina Comic Con and maybe Heroes Con. Maybe. I don't know if I'm going to make Heroes Con this year. That I'll be able to find them and fill them in. But uh, yeah, definitely a good point there, Rich. And Rich continues, too. I'm glad to see you want to review Inframan at some future time. However, I would uh, recommend avoiding the Inframan DVD released in April of 2017 being sold currently on Amazon. It seems to be a rip of an old VHS copy of the movie. From what I remember, the Super Inframan DVD from 2006 is superior. That is to say, if you can find it at a reasonable price. Anyway, keep up the good work. Looking forward to future episodes. Rich S. Rich, thank you very much for that. I remember the Super Inframan DVD. And I think I had it. To be honest, I have Inframan on DVD. I'm almost certain of it. But if I where it is, I have no idea. So I may have to may have to look into getting another copy of it. Because, you know, if, if it's like, you know, if you can't prove that you did it, did you actually do it kind of thing. But that's a good heads up about the new one. I wasn't aware that they had a new one. It must be a cheapy one. Uh, but I will, I'll check out Amazon and, and may, I'll put a... Uh, See if I can find a, a link to the one that, that Rich says to avoid and share that so everyone can see the, uh, the one that he's talking about and we can seek out the other one. I remember the Super Inframan one. I remember just I remember just seeing, it was a very rare in the U.S. to see it called Super Inframan. I was more used to seeing it as Inframan. Um, but yeah, I, I, we're definitely going to cover that. That movie is so insane. Just so bat spit, absolutely crazy, insane. That there's no way I couldn't cover it, frankly, and uh, and it's 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 a lot of people remembered it. It's such a um, a strange, strangely broad re- release for such a bizarre Tokusatsu movie, and a lot of people have a lot of fun memories. So we're definitely going to be covering that at some point in the future. Thanks again, Rich, for writing in, and uh, and it, folks, um, uh, like I said, I always want to encourage you to get in touch, not just with this show, but any podcast you listen to, because. We're doing this as a labor of love, and we totally appreciate your feedback, so please keep those cards and letters coming, as my brother says, and um, reach out to your favorite podcaster. So, what are we going to be covering next time on Earth Destruction Directive? Well, we are going to be revisiting a series we haven't been to in a couple of years. We're going to be taking a look at The Return of Daimajin, which is the second of the Daimajin films by Tawai. And um, really interested in seeing this one. I've actually never seen Return of Daimajin, so this is going to be a new experience for me as well. Uh, we also are going to be taking a look at the next issue of the Marvel Comics Godzilla series, which is number 14, continuing and I believe concluding the saga of the Mega Monsters. Will, how will Godzilla get out of this one? You know, will, what will be the fate of Red Ronin? What about Rob Takaguchi? All these questions and more we shall ask, and we shall see if we are answered. Uh, in addition, any news or anything else coming up about all the upcoming Daikaiju movies that we are expecting, we'll have that here. Of course, your emails and other feedback and anything else that comes up between now and then. I'd like to thank everyone once again for listening to the show. I hope you enjoyed it. And until next time, keep them stomping.
This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Dai Kaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Jackanetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, available at twotruefreaks.com. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I'll read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find the show on iTunes. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can even leave an iTunes review if you want. You can get in touch with the show on Facebook. Just search for Earth Destruction as the first name and Directive as the last name. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter with the handle LJacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. And if you want to buy something discussed on the show, head on over to twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com link on the front page. Any items you buy during your session on Amazon.com will help keep the lights on, and it won't cost you anything extra. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun on Earth Destruction Directive. Tune in next time to hear the crusty old podcaster from Oklahoma say, There's a WTF (laughs) moment if I ever saw one. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible.